welcome back to the Hadfield Report. So last week we talked about my ranking of the Halloween franchise as a whole. Now I'm kind of be, um, kind of going to be getting into reviews of the sequels. I've talked about Halloween 2018. I've talked about Halloween 1978. Now I'm super excited. We're going to go chronologically, which means today we get to talk about Halloween 2 from 1981. Um, this is the movie, if you remember, that, that I said in the last episode. This has really fallen on my list, and I'm going to talk about why today. I have nothing against this movie, and I love all of these movies. I think, yeah, I mean, I think if you gave me the option of watching any movie from the Halloween franchise, even fucking Halloween Resurrection, I, I would probably take it over some other shit out there. Eh. Maybe not Halloween Resurrection. I hate that movie. Um, nonetheless, you know, I, I'm going to be a little harsh about this. And, and toward the end of the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about why sometimes I'm kind of hard on these movies. But I'm a purist. I think, I think the first is the essence of what John Carpenter wanted, period, right? But I love these movies. And so don't mistake the harshness for not liking it or being an asshole who's who's you know snobbish about horror movies. I'm not saying that Halloween has to be like hereditary or midsummer or anything like that. I don't I don't prefer those movies to something like Halloween. I don't. So I'm not trying to be a snob about this. But as I'm going to talk about, I think we can have higher standards for some of these sequels. Um, and, and I think there are things that people sometimes forgive in Halloween 2 from 1981 that maybe shouldn't be forgiven. So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Let's pick it apart. Just so you know, the way that I'm going to do these reviews is genuinely, I go through, I rewatch the movie, I take notes as I go so that I know what I want to talk about in the podcast. There is no greater rhyme or reason besides it's in chronological order, and these are just some kind of thoughts that I generated as I went. So I'll kind of be walking through the movie, not in a commentary way, of course, just in a, you know, walking through the movie and giving some general thoughts on, on some of the, the highlights of the movie. All right, let's get into it. So a few things stand out in this movie right from the very beginning. First of all, I know that somehow Mr. Sandman became a thing in this franchise. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't I don't really get why. Like, why did that have to be a thing? Um, maybe, maybe I get, like, I don't know, Mr. Sandman, but Freddy Krueger is, is, is the Sandman. Anyway, I'm thinking too much about this. I know Nightmare on Elm Street was not around yet, but it just feels like somebody was, was listening to hits of the 50s and was like, oh, fuck, Mr. Sandman. Let's just, let's just throw this in the movie. But but why? It, it, let's just throw it in the movie. It would be badass. I, I don't know why it's here. It became a thing. Uh, Halloween H2O, you know, you get the reference back to it. You get a few references back to it, I think, over um, over the course of the franchise. Um, it, you know, H2O is the one that, that jumps out to me right now. So this, like, this, this became a thing. Obviously, they end the movie with it, too. I never really got why it was it was here. The other thing that stands out to me about the opening is <laughs> the previously on. This is, I mean, I don't know, I guess they decided we have to catch them up to speed. 
And so they pulled this move, which I'm going to say some things throughout this podcast that I think there are slight similarities um, to something like Friday the 13th, right? Where you always get a previously on. I recognize that Halloween 2, 1981, this is still, it predates most of those Friday the 13th sequels. Technically, it does follow Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2. There is a part of me that thinks that they absolutely took some cues from those two movies, which I have a problem with, and I'm going to talk about that more as we go. The previously on makes me think of a Friday the 13th movie, and it cheapens the movie for me. It's like, okay, we have a 90-minute runtime. How do we want to spend the first five minutes? Uh, uh, let's show highlights from the last movie. That, to me, says that the rest of the 85 minutes aren't exactly chock-full of valuable stuff. I don't like it. I also don't like the fact that they kind of rescore stuff from the original movie. This is a case in point of how important this soundtrack was in the first movie, and, and genuinely how important the soundtrack is in any movie. If you listen to the score that they used at the start of this movie, watch the scene. In 1978, that was one of the scariest fucking scenes. In this movie, it's not scary. It's not scary. And I think it kind of highlights the fact that this movie is going to be a step down, and the soundtrack is going to be a step down. No offense. I, I like this soundtrack, but like the movie, it's kind of fallen down the list for me. I do intend at some point, by the way, to do a, a soundtrack ranking. Um, just, you know, I want to do movie reviews first. But, yeah, no offense, sometimes I find this soundtrack to kind of be a little grating and annoying. I think, I think the, you know, the main theme, it still has a charm to it, even, you know, this new, more synthesized theme. But I think there was a simplicity to what Carpenter called the graveyard piano in the 78 film that we are missing here. Um, and so that stands out to me as well. Um... Okay, actually, I said that that was the other thing, but I, I have two other things to stand out from the beginning that I'm just seeing in my notes. Okay, remember I mentioned to you I don't like that they showed Michael's face in 1978. Note that Halloween 2, 1981, it cuts his face out. Literally, it splices that shot of him taking the mask off. It splices that out. So we don't get to see Tony Moran, even though he's, he's credited. We don't get to see him. That's intentional. Everything else is in there, right? They, they haven't spliced anything else out from that footage. And that to me says that this is a movie where they decided that Michael was going to be more supernatural. That's what that says to me. That says to me that somebody watched that and said, yeah, but that makes him a man and we want him to be supernatural. I'm going to come back to this, but you have Laurie saying, why won't he die? This is the movie Right, people say, well, Halloween 4 is where, where things went wrong, and Halloween 2 is where it was supposed to end. Okay, the conspiracy theorist in me says, uh-uh, Halloween 2 laid the groundwork for more than you think. Um, whether Carpenter wanted to or not, it feels like filmmakers here had a slightly hidden agenda here. Also, <laughs> I love... <laughs> that they added an outline of Michael's body on the grass, just in case, just in case you didn't notice that he was gone. 
And then Loomis, he, like, runs down there and he touches the grass and he gets a whole fucking pint of blood from the outline. It's ridiculous. They didn't need to do that. And again, I think it is just over the top and cheap and and I, they, they feel the need to hit you over the head with this information in a way that 1978 did not need to. And it was scarier then. It was more well done. It was more respectable. So the opening of this movie, to me, says a lot about what it's going to be. Don't love the opening. Uh, what I do love is Loomis. I shot him six times. Okay. Good shit. Good shit. Right? And I think for me, and this is with, with you know, some of these other shitty Halloween sequels where I have no, no huge desire to watch it outside of the kills, outside of Loomis. Halloween 5 is the best example. There is no reason that anybody should watch that movie. But Loomis? Yeah. Loomis is a reason to watch that movie. Halloween 2, obviously far better than Halloween 5. But again, for me, I think part of the pleasure of watching this movie is seeing Donald Pleasance just start to get a little more dramatic, a little more over the top. Uh, I remember growing up, my dad said that, that Donald Pleasance's performance was one of his favorites from any franchise just because he loved how hilariously campy it was. I, I think... I think that I take things a little more seriously than my dad does, and so I think I see the character with a little more reverence, a little more, you know, this is this is some serious shit. I see I see his arc coming into play in part four, and and that to me is like that's a super important thing. So, you know, I don't sit back and think you know, oh, hilariously campy, but I guess I can get what what he's what he's saying, you know, you start to get things like, you don't know what death is, right? And okay. Yeah. But at the same time, he's becoming more of a badass in this movie. And so that's one thing that I do, I do like. And one thing I do like seeing from the beginning. But I still have an issue with Dr. Loomis in this movie and, and with characters in this movie, as I'm going to talk about. Opening credits. Uh, I have continued on this trend of thinking that opening credits are a microcosm for the, the movie as a whole. And I think it does stand firm in some ways. Um, you know, the, the credits here, it's the same as the first, except you have a badass little twist at the end with, with the skull kind of emerging. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's over the top. And, and you know it's their way of saying, trust us, this shit is more intense. Um, and, and, and by intense, I mean, you know, it's intense insofar as it's more violent to keep up with the trends in horror. I like this opening. I do think, however, that emphasis on being violent and keeping up with the trends in horror, being more intense, I think that detracts from the movie as a whole. I think it's nowhere near as effective as the first, but I like these opening credits. I do. I like them a lot. I just think... They highlight something that the filmmakers are going for here that doesn't necessarily make it a better movie. I also mentioned, and this is going to be a trend throughout, I am always bothered by the fact that it feels that Halloween decided as a franchise to begin emulating Friday the 13th and other horror movies that, that were successful, right? Other successful slasher movies. In particular, I am bothered by the fact that there was this increased emphasis on 
you know, new exciting kills. Let's up the body count. Let's make it more like those movies. Why does this bother me? Because Halloween did it first, right? You can't top Halloween. And so just imagine, right? Just imagine that, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, but somebody who did it first. Okay, that would be like if you take a classic pair of, of sneakers. So say that we talk about Jordans, right? Okay, everybody knows a pair of Jordans and they are classic and they're timeless. They don't go out of style. We know there are a lot of companies that have tried to make their own basketball sneakers, but they're not Jordans. This to me feels like Jordans tried to mimic something that an off-brand ripoff of, you know, their company produced. And that makes me mad. When you are the king of the mountain, you don't look down at the peasants and say, I want to be more like them. Okay, not, not, to, not to make this a whole big political class metaphor, but you get what I'm saying, right? I don't like that Halloween decided that it needed to be like franchises that were inherently inferior. I love the Friday the 13th movies, but no, they are not Halloween movies. They are not on the same plane as Halloween. They're just not. So this is just a note to say, I'm going to be talking about some things throughout that remind me of Friday the 13th and some of these other slashers from the 80s that, that, were, that were making money. I don't appreciate that, that the original slasher, maybe not the original slasher, but the one that popularized the genre in 1978 decided that it needed to start doing what its imitators were doing. Don't like it. Obviously, after the opening credits, we get this tracking shot of Michael. The, the Mrs. Elrod scene, it's one of the best parts of the movie for a few reasons. The atmosphere that you set with The Night of the Living Dead, it's awesome. And it continues that trend of showing a classic horror movie on the night of Halloween. I think it's amazing how much scene setting you can do with a simple illusion like that, alluding to George Romero's classic. I also think they probably chose it because it's it's like it's copyright free. Do you know that? That I guess there was um, you you can um, look it up because I'm I'm trying to remember offhand. But the movie itself is not protected by copyright because of some mistakes that were made. Um, I think something is not included in the opening credits. Uh, look it up. It's kind of crazy. So a lot of movies that use it, it's because it's free. You don't have to pay royalties. It's not protected by copyright. Um, anyway. So that might be why they used it. I don't know. But I, I also think, and, and by the way, I think later on when we hear the music in, in a certain scene where we see Michael um, walking around the hospital, maybe we could say it's being used because he's like being built up almost like a zombie in this movie. Kind of like, you know, how, how 1978, in some ways, you know, kind of, paralleled him with the alien menace in the thing. Um, you know, so maybe there's that too, but I, I also wonder if money played a role. Okay, but as far as this tracking shot goes, I also think there is a real artistry, genuinely, a real artistry on display in the shot of Michael behind Mrs. Elrod, who herself is behind Mr. Elrod, who's sleeping on the recliner, I think. 
if you've seen Citizen Kane, that movie plays around with depth of field in a way that for the time was very experimental, um, very noteworthy, really kind of changed the game. This shot feels like it owes a lot to that, which is pretty high praise for a Halloween sequel. So I just want to point that out. I do think there's some artistry on display here. I wish we would get a little more of that. I also appreciate that the movie starts with stalking, which we have not gotten much of in the sequels that followed. But I think there are a few things that stand out that hold true for the rest of the movie. First of all, I've alluded to this, Michael is not as scary. You know, obviously the mask, it had, it had been sitting around, it got all yellowed by Deborah Hill's cigs or something like that. Kind of sits oddly on, on Dick Warlock's face. It, it's kind of round, rounder, it's fatter. It, it lacks that thin, crisp angularity that it has when it's on Nick Castle's face. That, I think, plays a role. Um, I love Dick Warlock. Don't get me wrong. I love Dick Warlock. But the way he moves in this movie, it's it's what I mentioned before, that, that sort of allusion to Night of the Living Dead. He feels like a zombie from that movie instead of just being a guy walking like in the first movie. And that's not to say that Nick Castle was just strutting around like a normal dude, right? He was definitely creeping around a little bit. But Dick Warlock is so stiff and mechanical. Whereas I, I feel that Nick Castle walks like a scary man. Dick Warlock, it, it, it does, it makes me think of a zombie, or it makes me think of a universal monster movie, and like Frankenstein. It just feels a little more performative, a little ridiculous, not Michael Myers. So that always takes me out of things a little bit too. And I think one other note about Michael here, part of the reason he's not as scary, and just something that says right from the start, don't get your hopes up too much about this movie. One of the lowest points of this movie for me is when Michael jumps up like a fucking ninja and he kills that random girl whose name, I think her name is, is Alice, I think. Um, I could be wrong about that. This is a terrible moment for two reasons. So, first of all, the jump is hilarious. White man can't jump, says who? Okay, <laughs> Michael would not do that. Michael is not doing aerobics while killing you. He's eerily calm. He's low-key. Jumping is not something that Michael would do. It just, it feels like that was a choice that came about because, well, you know, Michael was not firmly established like he is today. And, and maybe someone thought that this was going to be a good scare. Thanks to the music, it gets you a little bit, but the, the jump is just stupid. And I guess, come to think of it, this this is a literal jump scare. But <laughs> it's dumb. It's so dumb. And again, maybe I should give it a little more grace because Michael was not firmly established like he is today. Right? Kind of like how you can go back and look at Friday the 13th Part 2 and see Baghead Jason and realize that there are certain things about that movie that... There, there are just weird things about it. Or Friday the 13th Part 3, when it implies that he raped a girl. Uh, just certain things that, that maybe we don't expect from Jason. I kind of like seeing that um, and seeing those, those early iterations of what they thought the character was going to be, even if that's not what the character became. In this case, I don't like this. I just don't, I don't think that's, that's Michael. 
I think they should have gone with what Carpenter established instead of pushing him in a dumb direction like this. Um, okay. Also, the random girl, Alice, I, I fact-checked the name. She is only here to add to the body count. And that is an introduction to the fact that you know, while we get a relatively small number of kills in the first movie, very conservatively spaced out, carefully designed to not overdo it, in this movie, you are not getting that restraint. Carpenter knew something that, that I think a lot of horror directors don't realize, which is that the kills are not scary. The kills are cool. I mentioned in, in my last episode the whole cool versus badass, um, uh, scary versus badass scale. Um, you know, as far as Michael goes, as far as really any horror movie goes, you know, one of my favorite, and maybe I'll talk about this in, in, um, you know, a non-Halloween episode at some point. I, you know, I have an idea for some non-Halloween episodes sprinkled throughout. One of my favorite horror movies of the last decade was Evil Dead from 2013. I think there are some strong feelings about that movie, but I really, really, really love that movie. It's not scary. It's badass. And that's oh, that's okay, right? But focusing on kills is cool. I think this movie might think that focusing on kills is kind of scary, which is wrong. I think if you establish actual tension and you build up to the kills instead, that is scary. This movie, to its credit, I think it still leans toward being scary because it tries to mimic Carpenter's work in the first movie, and I'll, I'll mention some examples, but it's not as effective. And, and this whole ninja jumping scene with Alice introduces why it's not going to be as effective. Then, Laurie's at the hospital. And one of my biggest complaints about this movie is that I hate that you can tell that Jamie Lee Curtis was not here for all of filming. This just feels like a glorified cameo. She lies in hospital bed for most of the movie and then goes on a little chase for the last 15, maybe 20 minutes. And I hate that. I hate that. In the first movie, she was such a dynamic final girl. She was a presence throughout that whole movie. She was the heart of the movie. And when you take her away, to her credit, this movie, it lacks that sort of heart. I mentioned before I had a big concern about Dr. Loomis in this movie. I know with Halloween 1978, he really was not, Donald Pleasance was very expensive. Um, you know, he added some, some gravitas to that cast and was a legitimate actor. And so it was very important for Carpenter to have him playing that role. But he was very expensive. And I know that he filmed his scenes in the course of only a few days. And so, you know, he's not a huge part of that movie. The issue I have is, once again, he's just a bit of a cameo here, too. So who's your main character in this one? Not Jamie Lee Curtis. We already said. Not Dr. Loomis. Who's your main character? It's kind of Michael Myers, isn't it? And that, to me, is a mistake. That, to me, is a mistake. It might be cool, and I love Michael, don't get me wrong, but I think if you've made him your main character, it's a mistake, right? Because he also, he doesn't talk, he's not, there's nothing to 
to see there besides the kills. But prove me wrong. Prove that there is another character who is actually the main character here. I I don't think there's enough from Laurie to say that she is the main character. I just don't think so. The movie lacks that heart. It really needed a solid main character, and it doesn't have one. Also, just have to say, just have to throw this in. Um, <laughs> I love that Laurie's doctor, besides being a little creepy, and by the way, am I the only one who feels that way? He's definitely hungover, which is always a good thing. Between him and, and fucking Dr. Chalice, the healthcare community and the Halloween franchise is so deeply fucked up. Um, that was just a note that I, I had to point out. And one other note about all this, this hospital stuff from the beginning. We get two, two unnecessary additions here. First of all, it's the kid with the razor blade in the apple. You know, he bit into the apple. There was a razor blade. Okay, I guess there's a little bit of dark humor in that. Ha ha ha, whatever. We also get the shots of the needle plunging into Lori's arm. I think we get to see two or three different shots of that. Both of these, ultimately, are only here to make us cringe. And that feels super cheap to me even cheaper than Jamie Lee Curtis's wig in this movie. Uh, <laughs> ouch, okay. In all seriousness, it just, it feels like those random-ass 3D shots in Friday the 13th Part 3, where, you know, it's only there because they're trying to throw some cool shit at the audience. Look at this! But the first movie never would have done that, you know? So, I have an issue with that, too. I, again, I think there is a lot here that kind of cheapens the final product. But I will say... Wow. Brackett and Loomis, they just automatically go after Ben Tramer, um, and, and, you know, it leads to his explosive demise. It's just like, if that sort of thing happened today, it would go viral. People would be calling for the Hadfield Police Department to be defunded. What a disastrous moment. I mean, I guess I understand if you see someone with that mask, you might want to take a closer look, but the hair on the mask is blonde. The guy walks like he just shit in his pants or something. And, and Loomis and Brackett decide that, okay, yep, let's go 0 to 60 in about half a second. Suddenly they are running after him with their guns drawn. What? And and naturally, Ben Tramer, he, he doesn't just, you know, like, take off the mask and say, hey, it, it's just it's just me. He just, he leaves it on and, and runs. Okay, cool, that's logical. The only way I can justify that moment is that maybe he was drunk or something. Even so, I think it's cool, and it always kind of makes me smile a little bit that he gets blown up like he does. It's so over the top. But again, first movie would not have done that. It just feels it feels kind of stupid, ridiculous. Um, but hey, in all seriousness, to this movie's credit, I do think that this ridiculous moment is followed by one of the best scenes of the movie. The you let him out scene, right? Um, just to be completely honest, I do think Brad Dourif's, uh, Dourif's performance in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 better captures Brackett's despair. And I think Dourif's performance as a whole is one of the best acting performances from any Halloween movie ever. Incredible actor. I think, you know, that's one of those things that elevates that piece of shit for me and, and makes me want to watch it. Um, nonetheless, you have to hand it to Charles Cyphers in this movie. 
because I, I, he's been, you know, he, he was in a lot of Carpenter's movies. Never blew me away, right? Never seemed like an Oscar winning actor, you know, always kind of a character actor who was there, but I love the guy. But in this scene, I think he does carry it. And I think that's, I think you got to hand it to him. It's a really powerful moment. But I especially, especially love this scene because it's the first time that Loomis feels like a real character. He's got to live with the guilt that comes with this bloodshed. No, it's not his fault. It's not. He advised caution. He advised Thorazine, right? He never wanted Michael to get out, which, <laughs> come to think of it, this is a random note, but I, I didn't mention this in my Halloween 78 um, episode. But I love that in that movie, Marion Chambers is like, you mean you really never want him to get out? No. Actually, I'm hoping this maniac will be let out tomorrow and I'm writing a recommendation for him so he can get a good paying job at Haddonfield Elementary. No, what the fuck do you think? Of course he doesn't want him to be let out. But no, in all seriousness, Loomis is not to blame. But you can tell that he's starting to feel responsible in some way because so many other people are projecting their blame onto him. He has a weight on his shoulders in this movie, and it kind of causes him to lose a sense of stability that he he somewhat possessed in the first movie. Um, I don't know. It's it's really nice to see him just beginning to become a character in this one, and it kind of leads into what we see in part four, which again, that to me that's peak Loomis. One question, and this was a note that that I I had you know from from a very early point in this movie. One question that I often ask myself is how much did the cinematographer shape the look of the, the movie and how much did the director? Because especially in these outdoor scenes, we still get this undeniable carpenter feeling. If you had never watched this movie before, you just had it on in the background, you could be forgiven for assuming this was directed by Carpenter. Um, you know, if, if you paid closer attention, you would notice certain directorial choices that are obviously not Carpenter, which we'll talk about, you know, more as we go. But aesthetically, you do get some similarities. These outdoor scenes, you know, they have that greenish hue that we expect from a Carpenter movie. The inside of, of, of the police cars, they're so green. It reminds me of the fog. I love that. It just makes me start to ask. And I'm not trying to take away from Carpenter. And I also want to point out, we get a lot of wide shots too, right? Which is a Carpenter thing. It just makes me want to ask. How much of the awesomeness of Halloween 1978 is Cundy's doing? And how much is Carpenter's? Obviously, I think that Carpenter is one of the greatest directors of all time. He's brilliant. I'm just saying, at the very least, Cundy did a hell of a favor to Rick Rosenthal, who, who feels in this movie like a serviceable director. And I think we see his true colors with something like Halloween Resurrection, on the other hand. So you just wonder, how much did Cundy elevate this movie and the original? I don't know. I don't know. It's something to think about. One thing that I hate about sequels is when they try to mimic what the first movie did. Just because you're a sequel doesn't mean that you have to do things the same way and make self-aware references back to the first one. I will give this movie credit because at least story-wise, it does something a little different by setting the movie in a hospital. 
But even so, there's no plot. One of the core issues with this movie is that it has a setting. But it assumes that the setting is the plot. It assumes, okay, uh, what's the sequel going to be about? Uh, it's, it's in a hospital. Oh, cool. What, uh, that's, it's not, that's not a plot. Where you can kind of see that the movie's trying to do this stuff that the first movie did is where you have Mr. Garrett. Um, you know, he's being a, an awful security guard. And we hear the Night of the Living Dead theme that is playing as Michael's walking outside the hospital. And it's, it's a throwback to that amazing shot that we talked about from the first movie with the Thing soundtrack playing as Michael carries Annie's dead body. Don't get me wrong. I really, really like this scene. But it also takes me out of things a little bit. It reminds me that this is a sequel. And I kind of think it's a little sad that some of its best moments are just a retread of the first. Also... I started taking some notes on, you know, this use of Night of the Living Dead, especially, you know, when Mr. Garrett isn't paying attention to the security monitors. And it ended up, I had a lot more to say than I expected to. One, I fucking love this use of that classic score. Give credit to whoever came up with the idea. I love it. I think part of my love of this uh, is, is, due in some way to Puppet Combo, their homage, Babysitter Bloodbath. If you guys are not familiar with that game, look it up. Uh, Puppet Combo, just a, a random shout out, is legitimately my favorite game developer. When I'm having a bad day, I just, I watch a playthrough of a Puppet Combo game, especially Babysitter Bloodbath, which does an incredible job with, with kind of this lo-fi aesthetic, these throwback graphics of mimicking the Halloween atmosphere. And I mean the holiday, yeah, but I also mean the atmosphere that you get in the first and second movies. It's so good. And Papa Combo uses this exact excerpt from the Night of the Living Dead score in that game. It's perfect. Look it up if you haven't seen it. I think I think that's part of the reason that I love this moment so much is that it, it is a classic Halloween moment. It's a perfect use of that score. Also, though, have to fact check things a little bit. I overthought this this way too much, paid too much attention to this one little moment. This use of the score, it comes from the very beginning of the movie when Barbara is trying to get away from that zombie in the graveyard. Uh, you know, the, the one that then smashes her car window. Okay. At this point, when we are hearing this music, we are half an hour into Halloween 2. In the Mrs. Elrod scene, we got to see Barbara and, and her, her asshole brother in the graveyard, which means that this channel must have just gotten back from a 25-minute commercial break. Okay, sorry to overthink it, but it doesn't add up. Also, something else that doesn't add up is the score and what we see on the screen, because the use of the score and Barbara's screams and the sound of the window smashing don't line up with the images that we see on the TV, which come from a later scene in the movie. So they obviously added that sound in post-production, which honestly makes me appreciate this scene even more. Because that means they specifically intended on that part of the score, that particular sound of screaming and glass shattering, to play over Michael Walken. At the very least, again, I appreciate the artistry. I appreciate the fact that there's some intentionality here. I actually think that's kind of cool. What I do not appreciate 
is fucking Bud. Bud is an asshole torn from a Friday the 13th movie. He's this foul-mouthed, dirty slimeball. His presence in this movie is another clue to me that this is not going to be Halloween 1978. Can you imagine John Carpenter typing up that song? Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Shakespearean, folks. Shakespearean. I don't even think anybody in this name in this in this movie's name Grace. It, just, it, okay, but not to give Carpenter too much shit. He wasn't very proud of this movie, and we'll talk a little more about his involvement and his feelings about it later. In terms of Rick Rosenthal and his directorial choices that I question, I honestly question the use of so much damn subjective point of view in this thing. I feel like Rosenthal, he saw the opening uh, tracking shot from the first movie and was like, yep, let's just keep doing that. But here's why that doesn't work for me. You you just put me in the shoes of the killer. Where is the suspense? What, am I going to watch him sneak up and kill somebody? The hilarious part to me is that they try to create some sense of suspense as, as Michael is about to walk out of the nursery, the, the nursery and then he jumps back when the nurse passes. Um, and by the way, I think I've always called her Nurse Alves, and I think maybe she's even referred to as Mrs. Alves. But I, I think maybe it should be Alves. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's a Spanish surname. Anyway, back in 1981, if, if you'd asked the average American to describe Spanish culture, they, they probably would have told you about Taco Bell gorditas and, and like sombreros or something like that. Um, you know, I, that was that was 1981. But technically, I do think, in all fairness to the character, I do think that's supposed to be obvious. But okay, whatever. Um, there we have it, folks. That's what that's what keeps you coming back to this podcast. My breakdown of the the pronunciation of an obscure character's name. But seriously, when that Michael like almost walking out of the nursery and then jumping back because the nurse is walking by, when that is kind of like your scare for the scene, that's embarrassing. And it's also embarrassing because it commits the cardinal sin that, that Dave McRae warns against. It shows too much of Michael's method. You know, kind of peels back too much of the mystery. It's great to see him stalking. But do you have to show me that Michael jumps back to hide from people? That seems so stupid to me. I don't like that decision. Now, I will say, in all fairness, the nursery scene is one of my favorite scenes for two reasons. One, the use of depth of field. And again, I think the credit goes to Dean Cundy here. But I love that Michael is so subtly visible in the background. Two, the setting alone is some powerful, scary shit. How scary is it to have the shape standing in there where he could kill all those innocent babies? It's a very scary thought. But he doesn't kill them. This goes back to what I said in the first podcast. You know, it gives us too much time to come up with rules and demystify Michael, make some sense of someone who we're not really supposed to make sense of. Now we're thinking, okay, he doesn't kill babies. Hmm. But that being said, I do kind of appreciate you put him in that place. I just think we're seeing, you know, too much of him now that, that we've got a second movie. And I think it's a mistake to keep going back to that tracking shot. Carpenter used a point of view tracking shot in the first movie only to create a sense of suspense and create that sort of like, oh, fuck moment when we realize it's a kid. Here, we don't have any suspense. There is no, oh, fuck moment. There's none. And then, I already mentioned him, but we have fucking Mr. Garrett, who is eminently incompetent. He's looking for Michael. And 
this is this is what's wrong with this movie. We get like five minutes of this guy walking around, complete with like two fake outs, because everybody loves jump scares. And again, the impact of Friday the Thirteenth it just feels so apparent to me. Um, I don't know, maybe this is a coincidence, but the the cat the cat jump scare that happens in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, which came out six months before this thing did. Again, could be a coincidence. But it's the Friday the 13th playbook. Um, you know, you have cannon fodder, this guy who nobody gives a shit about. He spends five minutes walking to his obvious inevitable demise. This is a movie that is loaded, loaded with filler. And you can't say that about the first movie. Or really about any of Carpenter's movies. Although I know he made some really shitty ones. I avoid those. So I can't speak for those. But Carpenter, for the most part, really knows how to trim the fat. Like in They Live. The ending of that movie is incredible. I think people slam it for being a little too abrupt, but at least it knows when to end. Today I watch movies and they feel like they have two or, or three endings. They they don't know when the fuck to end. I think I think that the filmmakers fall in love with what they've done so much that they're 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 like, oh, I can't say goodbye. We let's throw in one more scene. They don't know when to end. Carpenter, he never overindulged in unnecessary filler. Rick Rosenthal does. Again, that's a big difference in direction. But, as they say in the journalism community, I really buried the lead here. I want to talk to you guys about the brother-sister storyline, because obviously that's one of the biggest things that people talk about in this movie. And yeah, I have some feelings about it. The biggest issue, and I know this, you know this, John Carpenter knows this. Jamie Lee Curtis knows this. David Gordon Green knows this. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's great aunt Barb knows this. Michael Myers, in the original movie, is a motiveless antagonist so far as we know. And that is the terrifying part. Obviously, you introduce the sister subplot, and instead of the boogeyman choosing these three random girls because of fate, Instead, you get a much more boring and unsatisfying story in which Michael is trying to kill Laurie because I guess he just wants to kill siblings? Here's the thing. This movie, story-wise, is a complete failure. It simultaneously demystifies Michael without actually fully committing to demystifying him. You've gone too far, you've given us too much, you've taken away the mystery and the mystique, and at the same time, the plot twist doesn't really make much of any sense. So he just wants to kill his siblings, it's not explained. So, you know, it's it's really, it's deeply unsatisfying, no matter how you cut it. And sure, you could say, well, look, the movie isn't spoon-feeding you, crybaby. Okay, <laughs> you know, I, I guess you can make that argument. But at the same time, we know that Carpenter hates this movie. And supposedly, he only wrote it so that Halloween could become a franchise, albeit, you know, his goal was an anthology series and not a Michael Myers series. Um... And we know Carpenter wanted his name attached to that franchise so he could make some money off of it. I highly doubt that there was a great degree of logic that went into this choice. I think that Carpenter was drunk on Budweiser and thinking, well, I got nothing else to offer at this point. Let's just throw this shit in there. Remember, he wrote this in 1980, 1981. So those years, he was working on The Fog. He was working on Escape from New York. Two far superior films. Do you think he was putting his heart and soul into this project? No. And it shows. I realize that I'm kind of bashing the thing. 
in spite of the fact that I like it. I have an appreciation for it. But I have an appreciation that comes from my nostalgic love of the franchise. I still expect these films to try harder at being good films. We all should. It's pretty sad when I've come to the conclusion that Halloween 2018 is probably the best Halloween sequel that we've gotten up to this point. So while I might seem overly critical, I do think that we need to have higher expectations if we want to see a sequel that has any chance of even remotely matching the brilliance of the original. That's a problem that I have with filmgoers today, is I think that our standards are too low. I think that we watch something like The Force Awakens and we think, hell yeah. But The Force Awakens, I'm not the first person to say, is a rehash of a lot of things that we had already seen, not just in A New Hope, but throughout the Star Wars franchise. It didn't push it in a new direction, right? It wasn't all that exciting or experimental. And I walked away disappointed. Meanwhile, people were saying this is a masterpiece. People were saying it was a masterpiece because it, it, it did a serviceable job of rebooting the series and wasn't a complete failure. But that, to me, is such a low bar. And that's certainly not the means by which we should be assessing whether something is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think we've really lowered our standards. Or maybe they were never that high, I'm not sure. But I think that, that this franchise is capable of, of giving us something, you know, that while it's always going to be deeply flawed because it's a sequel, I think it's, we can get something that is closer to the brilliance of the original. But we haven't yet. And I think so long as we settle for stuff that is far, far, um, you know, inferior, then we're going to keep getting it. It's just a thought. And I want to make one other note about the brother-sister twist and why it feels so unsatisfying and half-assed to me. We never get an actual scene where Lori confronts this reality. She never even discusses it with anyone or explicitly acknowledges it. You know, you would think that maybe she would re refer to him as her brother and, and you know, when, when he shows up or... No, no. Uh, we get the revelation in a dream sequence. Then Laurie wakes up and moves on. There is no explicit recognition. And it, it almost feels to me, and I could be wrong, right? And, and I, actually, I think it's not accurate. But it feels when you're watching it as though the brother-sister shit was just a late addition that came after Jamie Lee Curtis had finished filming her scenes. And they were like, all right, let's throw this dream sequence in. That will give this movie a little more oomph, right? Again, uh, based on what I know, that's not accurate. But at least it feels that way because it's so disconnected from the rest of the plot. The plot doesn't, doesn't build on this in any way, which is Honestly, if you were going to go in that direction, then you should have used it in some way to forward the plot, because there isn't really much plot beyond that. Um, and that feels weird to me. It really does. It feels like this is the biggest plot point, and yet it's told in a dream sequence, and it's told in a scene with Dr. Loomis, and both of them are actually detached from anything that goes on in the movie, or the way that the characters really act. It, 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 it's, a, it's a huge missed opportunity, and... You know, while I while I disagree with it, it could have at least helped move the plot somewhere. Um, you know, I, I, I would have loved to have seen some sort of, of scene where Lori actually discusses this with Dr. Loomis. I think that would elevate this movie. Uh, and, and honestly, more Lori and Dr. Loomis, I think, would do a world of wonders for this thing. 
you know, obviously their shooting schedules were probably tricky to coordinate, but I think it's interesting to consider, you know, the fact that thanks to social media, if Halloween 2 were made today, I, I think fan reactions um, to these characters and the pressures that, that fans put on studios would cause this movie to look a little different. You would definitely get more fan service. I think you would get more Laurie and Loomis together. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of talk about how fans have too much influence on Hollywood today. You know, okay, fine. Um, I've really been tempted to talk about, like, the Snyder Cup, but that's not the focus of this podcast. Maybe at some point I'll talk about the state of Hollywood right now and connect it to, you know, Halloween Kills, Halloween 2018, whatever. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts about the degree of influence that fans have on the industry. So I get that, right? But in this case, you, you really wish that these filmmakers had known what they had with this franchise. You know, I, I think Halloween 4 was the first time that filmmakers in this franchise were kind of cognizant of fans' sentiments because of the backlash they got from Halloween 3. Um, and by the way, that backlash is so, so, so deeply misplaced. And I'm going to be talking about that movie next week, so super excited for that. But again, I don't think that filmmakers knew exactly what they were dealing with here and what fans wanted to see until Halloween 4, you know, for better or worse. And skipping ahead a little bit in my notes, the next thing that I had mentioned was about the Bud and Karen scene, the, the hot tub sequence. I'm not going to say much about it besides, again, you know, good job cheapening the franchise by going all in on, you know, the Friday the 13th sex and gore stuff. The hot tub kill, to be clear, it's cool for sure. I, you know, as a horror fan, I love it. And, and you know, I, I think I think it's it's one of the more interesting kills from the franchise. It is, it's, it's gnarly. It's really it's some nasty stuff. But, and this is what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And it's what I encourage you to do. If I put myself in the shoes of somebody who loved the first movie and was sitting in theaters in 1981 excited to watch this sequel, how would I feel? I think I would be pissed. And that's part of how I'm trying to assess this movie, is not somebody who, who looks at it as like a consumer of the whole franchise, but as somebody who just got done watching the first movie and now, in its purest sense, I'm trying to experience the sequel, I think, I, I think I'd be pissed. Um, I also have a note here about <laughs> Michael going to the school and writing uh, Samhain or Sawin, I think is how you say it. Um, although, you know, Donald Pleasant's yeah, fuck pronunciation. He doesn't have time to get that right. Uh, yeah, I just think that's so laughable that he wrote that on the walls. Like, Michael writing anything seems ridiculous to me. He might as well have written, Lori's my sister and I'm going to kill her. Like, <laughs> why, why would Michael write any kind of message? Again... It's a small choice, but it's a small choice that demystifies the shape. And to me, the real kicker is that he has pretty solid handwriting. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, you know, you know that kid in high school whose handwriting, it, it looked like a drunken chimpanzee. Like, there is always a kid who just can't get his shit together. And, and, and maybe he even kind of liked the attention that his bad handwriting got. Like, that, that's what Michael's handwriting would look like. I, I, I don't, I, I think the moment is laughable. I think it's a mistake. Um, I don't hate it only because it makes me laugh, but also I kind of hate it. I'm going to take a break from bashing the movie though. Really, I am. 
Because, again, I'm, I'm being harsh, but it's not to say that I don't like the movie. It's just to say, I think I think we should have higher standards. And I think it's fair to assess this one against the movie that immediately preceded it. Because, like, you know, that was what was promised to audiences in 1981. Um, but I'll take a break, and I'm going to give it credit. The syringe kill, the shot of Michael slowly merging from the darkness and killing, I think her name is Janet. Okay. Again, sure, it goes back to my complaint that some of the best moments in this movie are, are a bit of a retread, but this is actually a great moment. And this is why I say Michael in this movie leans more toward scary than badass. Um, you know, you could look at something like the hot tub kill and say, oh, he's badass for sure, because that's a cool kill. But really, the movie does enough, enough with moments like this, with the syringe, you know, killing Janet. The movie does enough with these moments to genuinely scare us. And I think it helps as well that the atmosphere is strong. When Michael goes into the room to stab Lori, it's dark and you see the jack-o'-lantern in, in, in the background. And, you know, in, in today's fucking world, they would not allow that with, with fire safety regulations and everything. You know, thanks to Big Brother, we can't even, you know, have the basic liberty to accidentally burn a hospital down. But in all seriousness, in this movie, they have the jack-o'-lantern, and it might seem dumb, but that's the sort of thing that helps create some semblance of Halloween atmosphere, like what we got in the first movie. Um, let me say one thing, though. One pet peeve is this. When Michael goes to kill Laurie, we have seen him pull some dramatic stunts in these first two movies, like, you know, creating his artwork with with Annie's body and, and Judith's gravestone or uh, dressing up as a ghost and then killing Linda. You know, he has he has a flair for the dramatic. You know, in this movie, we see Boyle's Karen in the hot tub. You know, he even he bleeds Nurse Alves or Alves to death, which I think is a, a freaking awesome visual. As we all know, in this movie, Michael's central goal is to kill Lori. That is the kill that this is all leading up to. Apparently, that's his life's ambition. So in this big moment, when he has her right where he wants her, or thinks so at least, naturally he would just casually stab her in the torso with a scalpel. For Michael's sake, I'm glad that Lori wasn't there. That is just, a, that's a great way to blow a perfect opportunity for some drama and artistry. Uh, pet peeve. Come on, Michael. Be a little more. You know, it's almost like he knew she wasn't there. He was just going through the motions. Well, I know she's not in this bed. Let me just... You know, again, um, I also think that, like, then him realizing that it's just pillows, it, it, again, it demystifies. It takes away some of his power as a character for me. It, it, it's just like, here's his process. Oh, he thought she was there. Whoops, she got him. What hijinks? You know, eh. It just don't don't exactly love that. So of course Michael realizes Lori isn't there. He stalks her through the hospital. The amazing part is I think that this was supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be suspenseful. It's supposed to keep us on on our toes, and we're supposed to be like, oh fuck! It all led up to this. And it's it's really none of those things. It's so deeply boring. Carpenter in the 1978 film, he had us on our toes even in the moments where Michael wasn't around. This movie can't keep us on our toes when we think that he is. Um, 
you know, there's some cool stuff here, like his silhouette that's looming behind Jimmy and the nurse. But the bizarre thing is, it's just not scary. And and sometimes, you know, I have different different explanations for why I think this is. Sometimes I think, you know, maybe it's it's just because the pacing is slightly off throughout the movie and things just drag a little. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it's because we don't care as much about the characters. The movie lacks the heart of the first. Sometimes I think it's because the soundtrack isn't as effective. I don't know what the definitive answer is, but you cannot deny that this movie is less effective than the first movie in scaring its audience. You can't deny that. Now, to its credit, the movie does have its moments. I love the revelation that comes shortly, um, you know, after you know he starts to stalk Lori, that, that Michael has slashed all the tires. I think the issue is that to some extent, this movie attempts to have it both ways. You know, it wants a slow burn, like in the original, building up to a violent climax, but that slow burn consists only of a bunch of boring shit that nobody wants to watch mixed in with over-the-top kills. That's not really a slow burn. You can't throw violent excess at us and then decide to hit us with some nuanced, off-putting stuff, too. Start with the nuance. Start with the off-putting. Start with the indirect. Do an actual slow burn. Then you can get into the violence if you want to. But this movie, it obviously, it, it overexposes Michael, right? It wants to mimic the first movie, but it doesn't have the restraint that it takes. Michael gets more screen time in this thing than any other character, if you think about it. In the first movie, he was around, but was he on the screen all the time? No. And I talked about it, you know, in my, in my Halloween 1978 episode, the lengths to which Carpenter went, uh, you know, to keep him off the screen and out of our view. That, that, that was very important to Carpenter. So can you imagine how much more effective that moment would be when Michael shows up and he kills the nurse, he kind of lifts her up with the scalpel? It's, it's pretty badass. And when he starts chasing Lori, can you imagine how much more effective that would have been if we hadn't seen that much or as much of him up to that point? For me, it's it's like what Dave McRae said in, in his recent Halloween 5 concept video. It would be awesome to keep him off screen for a large chunk of the movie before bringing him into things. But the audience lacks the patience for that sort of artistic decision. Even in 1981, there was a degree of instant gratification. And obviously today, you know, it's, it's even, it's, it's a bigger issue. Um, but it would be great to be able to, to do an actual slow burn. I think it's just that at this point, you know, audiences know Michael. They've seen Michael. And I guess that's, you know, that's why they bought the ticket. Um, but I, I think it's a shame because I think the movie builds itself up as though it is a slow burn to him going after Lori. It's, it's really not. It's not. When Michael is chasing Lori, it's effective, but does anyone else agree it's not exactly edge-of-your-seat stuff? Now, I think, uh, to be fair, I think that I used to think that this was, and now I've, I've seen it enough that, you know, but I still think it doesn't work as well as the original works. And, and again, I'm sorry to bash it, but I think the soundtrack plays a role. Um, you know, I, I used to think that the, the Halloween 2 soundtrack was so great. And then one day I was listening to it with my best friend and he said, it's amazing how much worse this is compared to the first. And 
that really got me thinking. And, you know, I, I think in, in some sense I agree with him. I, I don't exactly know why Carpenter tried to fix something that wasn't broken. Right, the Halloween 1978 score is a cinematic marvel. I mean, Carpenter just kind of pulled the thing out of his ass. Now, we know that he's a great musician, but we also know this is a guy who was, like, working on a shoestring budget, trying to do everything, and somehow had the time to come up with that masterpiece. It's incredible to me. It wasn't broken. It was so much more effective than, than you know, 99% of the other soundtracks you know, that we've heard in horror movies. So, again, why make changes? I think this movie would be scarier with a stronger soundtrack. I think it would be scarier. Um, you know, the chase scene would work more if it had that sort of propulsive, ominous score from the first movie. You know, something, again, I think there is simplicity in that graveyard piano that we don't get in this overly synthesized, you know, rendition. Um, without that original score, I think this, this movie lacks some of the power and this scene lacks some of the power that it should have. You know, unfortunately, this is one of those scenes where you look at Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and you're like, holy shit, this is actually better. You know, and, and the whole Halloween, uh, you know, hospital chase, it's, it's cool, but it's still kind of a retread of the first movie. Now he's he's chasing her through a hospital instead of through a house. And I want to applaud the movie for its novelty and for trying to do something different. But again, the movie thinks the setting is its plot. The movie thinks that changing the setting will set it apart. And it doesn't change the fact that you've basically just killed 60, 70 minutes to get to a conclusion where Michael chases Laurie again. And Dr. Loomis intervenes to stop him again. You know, it's the thing about sequels. You end up doing the same shit all over again. Um, and, and when this movie does things differently, it's mimicking other movies like Friday the 13th. I want to come back to something that I've been saying about characters. I've talked about Lori and the fact that, you know, she's not really much of a presence in this movie. I have a big issue with the fact that this movie does not make her a character. This movie, it's just like, you know, here's the girl you knew in the first movie, and she's his sister. The end. There's no greater characterization whatsoever. I think that the sequel needed to take that character arc further. Halloween 2018, it shows us Laurie after her transformation from a shy girl to a badass basket case, right? I think Halloween 2 missed an opportunity to show us that transformation to kind of develop a sort of relationship between Laurie and Loomis and to allow these two characters to feed off of each other and shape each other. Now look, for the record, I agree with Cody Leach insofar as I don't like the fact that this franchise is tethered to Jamie Lee Curtis. But this is the sequel they made. She's still a presence. You know, they pick up right after, you know, the first movie. They needed to do more with her. In fact, you know, they really had to do more with all of the characters. To me, the sad part is that the only character who actually feels like they're at all developed here is Brackett, who's around for like 10 minutes. But Loomis, you know, again, I like I like that he's he's a little loonier, but he he continues to just be the doctor chasing Michael. Period. Right? He's just Michael's old doctor and that's it. 
And all these side characters, you know, obviously there, there are no arcs there. Bud's subplot isn't exactly torn from, uh, from Macbeth, right? So, I, there aren't really characters in this movie. There aren't character arcs. Brackett is the only one who has some semblance of an arc. And he's in it for the first 10 minutes. I think the movie fails, as I said before, because it makes Michael the star of the show. You know, there's nobody in this movie more interesting than Michael. And that is a shame. Because Michael is way less interesting in this thing than he was in the first. You know, we, we do kind of get hints of Michael's inherent mystery and weirdness. You know, why on earth does does he let Karen suck on his fingers down there by the hot tub? It's so weird. It's, it's so gross. Um... I like what the guys from Wham say. You know his fingers. I, I mean, they got to taste like ass. It's disgusting. Um, but, you know, again, we get kind of those sort of like sexual intimations, like what we saw in the first movie when he's watching Linda and Bob, uh, or when he's just generally creeping up on these naked girls. Um, you know, but the first movie wasn't overt about it. And I, I don't know if this one is overt about it either. Um, I guess there's also still a bit of a taste for the dramatic, but again, this is a sequel that, that proves my point. You can't, I, I, thus far, I'm not convinced that you can make a, a completely successful Michael Myers sequel. I don't think that you can capture the lightning in a bottle that Carpenter captured with the first movie. The minute that Michael jumps at that girl at the beginning of the movie, um, you know, Alice, it, it already takes away from Car what, what Carpenter built up in the original. You know, when you add stuff like Michael writing on the walls and referencing ancient druid rituals and shit, that takes away from the mystique. You know, when you get stuff like Michael not killing the babies in the nursery, I kind of like that scene, but, you know, add to your list of rules, it takes away from the mystique. Um, you know, it's it's like, what, what do we know about Michael? Okay, that's a new thing. So... And, you know, other things pop up, too. Like, I know this is a nitpicky detail, but when you have Michael walking differently, and it, I know it's only due to a difference in, in the actor and the lack of direction from Rick Rosenthal. But, folks, the fact of the matter is that it was a key detail that they overlooked when they produced this movie. And they were just like, yeah, whatever. So you literally, you can't watch the movie without realizing it. And you can't realize it without also realizing that this oversight indicates that the filmmakers just weren't that concerned about it. Um, and, and, and you can't think about that lack of concern without also thinking, yeah, Michael is just a movie character. It just, it takes you out of the movie. And the first movie never took you out of the movie. Maybe any sequel would take you out of the movie and would always get you comparing, you know, comparing a character to the first. I think that's that's the threat of taking a character like Michael Myers and making a sequel to the original film. One more thing. When you've got Laurie asking Dr. Loomis, I mentioned this before, why won't he die? That's also demystifying Michael and making the supernatural element more explicit. You know, I that to me feels like it's implying that the movie knows that he's supernatural and there is something there is something about him that is supernatural and it's built into the dialogue the first movie didn't do that 
And again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist, but you just can't help but wonder if someone involved in the production of this movie wanted certain things to be in here to, in some way, leave the door open to bringing Michael back. You know, I know Carpenter says this was it. This was the completion of my vision. This was going to be an anthology series. And I get that they, you know, started moving in that direction. But I don't know, guys. I mean, the movie feels like it wants this to be a franchise. And then we get to the end of the movie. And I think we all know how the movie ends. You know, and, and I love that Loomis, he goes down with the ship. He sacrifices himself and he dies with Michael. Um, you know, well, if we consider this, you know, the conclusion to the story. But because Loomis was barely a character in this movie, it's just kind of blah, right? I think that... As Halloween fans, we appreciate this ending because we know Loomis from the later sequels. You know, so so this kind of feels badass. Um, we take everything that we know about him from the movies that followed, you know, all these badass moments that followed, we project that onto him in this movie. But again, put yourselves in the shoes of someone who didn't know about any of those other sequels and was just sitting in theaters to watch Halloween 2 back in 1981. And... I guarantee it would not feel as badass as you think it would. You would walk away from this movie feeling disappointed. You know, I said it at the beginning, and I said it in my last episode, you know, in the ranking. Um, this is, it's one movie in the franchise that has really dropped on my list. It's just, it's, it's like one of those impressionist, pointillist paintings, right? It looks great from a quick glance, but you get closer you spend a little more time with it, you inspect it more, it doesn't necessarily hold up. Do I like certain things? Sure. I like that it's a direct continuation of the first movie, which was a novel idea. I like that thanks to Cundi and, and maybe maybe Carpenter, I've heard some like murmurs of a somewhat poltergeisty situation here, you know, as far as like who was directing this. Um, they're probably not true. But, you know, at least thanks to Cundi and Carpenter's influence, this does feel like it owes something creatively to the first movie. It feels like it belongs in the same universe. Um, yeah, I mean, to their credit, it feels like it takes place on the same night. You know, there is, there is a feeling of, of, um, you know, continuity here. Even if it's completely disappointing in comparison to the original. And as a horror fan, I like the kills, you know, even if I kind of think maybe it was a mistake to start going in that direction. I like what the franchise became, even if some of it is dog shit. I think it's fun to watch, undeniably fun. Um, but I think as somebody who, who recognizes that you could have kept it more in line with the original, even if you were going against Carpenter's wishes in making a sequel in the first place, you know, I... I, I don't know. I, sometimes I just, I, I think it was a mistake to go in that direction. And, you know, I like other things. I like that Loomis, as I said, is a little more on edge here. I love the moment with Brackett realizing that Annie's dead. Um, you know, some of these moments are franchise bests, like the Mrs. Elrod scene or the syringe kill. I like that this movie didn't go full Terminator just yet. It tried to keep Michael scary and not just badass. But 
as a sequel to one of the best films ever made. It obviously fails, and honestly, you listen to Carpenter talking about it, and he knew it was going to fail. And to me, that's the damning indictment of it. Ultimately, this is a movie with some great moments, but a movie that doesn't remotely match up to the original. And it really needs a story. You know, this barely has a story. Michael, he keeps chasing Laurie, and Dr. Loomis keeps chasing Michael, and oh, by the way, Laurie's Michael's sister, because why the hell not? Loomis kills Michael in an explosion, and they die together, and Laurie drives away in, in an ambulance, is taken away in an ambulance. Okay. But that's really all there is to it. So... Things I appreciate, but the story is lacking. But as a fan of the franchise, warts and all, I'm thankful for this movie. And I'm thankful for the strong moments. And, you know, I'm, I'm always thankful for more Michael, even if it's when they started you know, fucking Michael up. Uh, I'm always thankful for Dr. Loomis, even if Loomis isn't yet the Loomis who we all know and love. Um, and, and I'm thankful to at least be able to see this franchise in the state of becoming what it would become. It's just that I can't help but watch the movie and feel a bit of sadness knowing that it was a departure from absolute brilliance. Speaking of absolute brilliance, next week we're discussing Halloween 3, season of The Witch, one of my all-time favorite movies. I know I didn't talk about it in my ranking video. I just couldn't really find a logical way to put it into conversation um, and weigh it against you know, these, these Michael Myers movies. But I love Halloween 3. I'm so excited to get into it. Um, you know, excited to, to talk about it. In the meantime, if you're pissed off that I dis disrespected Halloween 2, you want to tell me to fuck off, be sure to reach out on Twitter. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> um, you know, we all have the right to be wrong. Now, in, in all seriousness, uh, I am on, on Twitter in case you ever want to reach out. Um, but as always, thank you guys for listening. Um, you know, it's, it's been great to be able to kind of tap into this network of fans and be able to talk Halloween with all of you. I think it's, it's incredible. So thank you as always for listening next week, talking Halloween three. So excited for that. So we'll see you next week on the Haddonfield Report.